What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Turn on the Jets Digital Presents Draft Season. I am your moderator and Michael Buffer to the stars of Draft Season. D.A. Osario joined, as always, by the two uh, the two dopest on the microphone, you know, and that's an old school hip hop reference uh, that predates one of our hosts and I think fits in well with me and <laughs> Joe, uh, Joe Bellick and James Coons. Guys, how are you doing on this lovely December 20th uh, that we are recording this episode? How are you guys feeling? Doing great, Alvin, man. Great to be on. Yeah, James. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, and by the time you guys hear this episode, and I know you're probably getting tired of me saying this, but don't worry because we are on the road, guys, after a incredible Trevor Lawrence performance that I would hope, I would hope ends any kind of discussion, uh, you know, for the naysayers so that Justin Fields was quarterback 1A. I, I would hope that last night ended that, um, you know, but we are on the road to the Trevor train. We are nearing the exit. And so, as you guys know, the format, uh, seven rounds of nothing but draft talk. Uh, and we'll start right off the bat, round one. We're going to grade a mock. This came from the Draft Network. And just so you guys know, we have been, I've received five mocks since, since, since I said that we do not charge you to grade your mocks. So we will start to get to your mocks as we get closer to, as we get closer to, to, to the draft. But let's go right into this draft. We are grading the, the, we're grading what Draft Network gave the Jets with the Seattle Seahawks first round pick, which right now is the 25th pick. Uh, but keep in mind that if they catch the Rams for the division title, then it'll probably be like 26, 27th or something like that. But right now it is the 25th pick. Uh, and in this mock draft, the, 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 this this mocker had the Jets breaking the mold and taking a running back in round one. Uh, Joe, I will start with you, and then I'll go to James. Joe, one, what did you think of the pick? Two, how would you grade it? And would you have gone a different direction? Yeah, I'm not going to talk too much about ETN as a player. You know, home run ability, contact balance, hands, and he could push the pile even at his size. This guy pretty much has it all. As far as taking ETN here, considering our starting back is 100 years old in running back years, and the Jets have had only one 100-yard rusher since Sam Darnold's rookie year. This pick could have been a lot worse. Um, but I think the Jets have a lot of needs besides running back. They should probably address first. And given Joe Douglas's draft history, I don't think it's a pick, a pick he'd make in the first round. Still, I ended up giving it a favorable grade, and let me explain why. A pick like this tells me the Jets are approaching the draft with an offensive mindset. And with a new young quarterback and a team that posted the worst offensive DVO, DVOA two years in a row, that's just the angle they need to take. You know, similar to what Douglas and Roseman did in 2019. And I mentioned this last week when they selected offensive players with their first three picks, looking to add weapons around Carson Wentz. That's the kind of blueprint I think they should follow. Still, don't get me wrong. I'm not totally opposed to taking a defensive player if someone they didn't expect fell to them. But by and large, this needs to be a draft top heavy in offense. And I'm going to continue to feel that way unless they address major needs at offensive line and wide receiver free agency. Because let's not sugarcoat it. This offense is horrible. If 2020 could be an NFL offense, it would be the New York Jets. Let's be real. You know, so with that said, I'm not crazy about ETN here or running backs in the first round in general, especially with prospects like Rashard Bateman still on the board. But I gave the selection a B anyway because Harris attacked this pick with the proper mindset. And any selection that involves offense and putting pieces around Trevor is something I could get behind it and justify. 
Yeah, and I think you make a really good point, uh, and we'll get to this later when we talk about running backs in general. I think that when you <clears throat> when you look at what Joe Douglas did in Philly and what Baltimore was not afraid to do when Joe Douglas was there, it was definitely they they made sure that they surrounded their quarterbacks with talent, right? Whether that was an offensive line, receiver, it didn't matter, right? And so I think that's a good mindset to have when you're looking at building around Trevor Lawrence. And you alluded to this a couple episodes ago, one of the biggest failures in the Sam Darnold experiment, and we'll talk about this a little bit later too, is that they did not give him a competent running game, right? Because that eases a lot of young quarterbacks, right? You look at Josh Allen, right? You look at Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson, his running backs are better than his wide receivers, right? It just eases his, it just eases his transition into the game. When you have JK Dobbins, have Mark Ingram last year, you have Gus Edwards, you have justice, justice Hill too. So like they, that's what Baltimore, more did for for Lamar and it's also what Cleveland's done for for Baker this year too James what do you think about going running back with the with Seattle's pick yeah I I'm not a big fan of it I don't think the Jets would do it either um but I do understand where it's coming from um and I think despite the fact I'm not a big fan of it I am a big fan of ETN um we'll talk about running backs later but he is my RB1 in this class um and I really love his game but I think the thing is um when you look at like running back successes and failures in the NFL, number one, running back success is incredibly dependent on offensive line play. Number two, running back success is also um, it's less sustainable than success at other positions, just because of how many hits running backs receive and how injury prone they are because of that. Um, I'd say the one benefit of drafting a running back like ETN in the first round is that you would get the fifth year option and you would be able to franchise tag him. Um, but then I would say the obvious downside to that is because you invested that type of draft capital, capital, you might be more willing to extend him and get locked into a really bad running back contract. So I would say overall, um, I would not want to pick a running back with a Seattle pick. So I'd give the pick um, probably a B minus or a C plus. Yeah, and I think that's fair. I think I think when we look at philosophy, it's where are you pouring your resources into, right? And we've seen general managers for the New York Jets just not pour resources into the offensive side of the ball. So I will say I was excited to see it, but I, I definitely agree. I think that I would much rather go for a high upside wide receiver like a Rashad Bateman, right? Where I think that kind of gives you a little bit more value. Um, and that's not a knock on it on, on, you know, the Terminator. That's what I'm going to call him at the next level. It's not a knock on the Terminator. Um, because I think, I think when you, when you look at, when you look at positional value, the game has devalued running back so much um, and it is a passing league, but I think Etienne is one of the, one of the running backs in this draft. And we'll talk about running backs later who actually has value in that because of his ability as a pass catcher. Um, so let's go right into round two, right? Uh, so we're going to, you, and you both mentioned the offensive line, right? We have Makai back then we have yet to see cam clark this year um the jets uh picked up uh pat elflane from the vikings on waivers and he's been pretty good so far um which i mean could go a long way towards solidifying one of the offensive guard spots right and we all know that last year joe douglas's prime prime uh crown jewel of free agency was supposed to be joe tooney until the until the patriots franchise tagged him so I'll pitch it to you, James, first, and then we'll go to Joe. Offensive line, based on what you've seen, you saw him swing for the fences with Makai Becton. You saw that he was not afraid to claim a, a productive veteran in Pat Elflane in the middle of the season. And so clearly his approach is, listen, we have to protect whoever our quarterback is going to be, which, knock on wood, we all hope is Trevor Lawrence. Looking at Joe Douglas's approach to offensive line, 
where would you, what do you think his philosophy is in terms of just the offensive line as, as a whole? And I know coaching impacts like just what kind of offensive lineman you're going to go for, but just, you know, are there some free agents that you absolutely see him going after like a Tooney, like he did last year? Do you see him staying away from a Brandon Scherf, things like that? Just uh, what, what are you thinking in terms of how he will build this offensive line for, for his next franchise quarterback? Yeah, I think the, I think it's more instructive to look at the draft than free agency because free agency has a limited player pool and it's kind of like you take what you can get at a reasonable price, whereas the draft has a, a more diverse player pool. And so I think that draft history is more indicative of the types of players that you want than free agency is. Um, and if we look at the commonalities between Becton and Cameron Clark, I think the obvious ones are that they're both finishers. Um, they're both like leaders. They're good people in the locker room. Um I think they're both scheme diverse, but I don't think that is a Douglas preference. I think that was more Gase is going to be fired after this year. So we need to get scheme diverse players. You know, it's not just the offensive line. P. Ryan's scheme diverse. Mims is scheme diverse. All the other players are scheme diverse. Um, regardless, I do think that he's going to look for some of those tenacious finishing qualities and offensive linemen. Um, so I'd say that is the like trademark of Douglas's offensive line philosophy. Yeah, and I think you make a really good point, which I I I appreciate the the nail in the nails in Adam Gase's coffin continue to get dug in because I am getting very very annoyed by constantly hearing, well, what if they bring him back? No, it's not happening. It's not happening. Uh, Joe Douglas made it a point to sign all his free agents to one year deals, essentially, except for Connor McGovern. I think I think it was with the idea that listen, I'm going to need an escape hatch from this guy soon. Joe, you've done a lot of work, you know, on offensive linemen in general, uh, and I and I think you uh, you had a really good point, and you and James actually both made this point a couple episodes ago, where you said that what you wanted to see with Douglas's first draft pick was would he play it safe. Right. Or would he go for the high ceiling guy? Right. And that would kind of tell you a little bit about what, what you thought. Um, and I know for me, Beckton was the home run swing. Right. Like I thought worse was safer. I thought Wills would have been safer. Right. Andrew Thomas was arguably the safest, but Mackay Beckton was the, the home run. So looking at looking at Beckton, looking at Clark, what do you think Douglas's philosophy? Is it is it scheme? Is it scheme versatility? Is that kind of what his thinking is similar to what James meant? Or do you have a different take on that? No, I, I think he he does look for versatile players as far as scheme and positional interchangeability. You know, guys who have the strength to get some vertical push and the athleticism to move laterally and what has become a predominantly zone-based run league. So guys who are both strong and mobile. And, you know, as far as positional interchangeability, even the guys you mentioned like Elfline, you know, he came into the league as a center. Now he's a guard. But Govern has the ability to play guard as well. You know, they took um, Clark. He was a tackle who's probably going to transition to guard. So I think the positional interchangeability thing for him is, is really big and just versatile players in general. Um, and, you know, we've, as far as this draft goes, uh, I think Douglas may target like, a versatile t- tackle again who could potentially start his career at guard before sliding into right tackle in 2022. I mean, yeah, ideally, that's the kind of player I'd like him to target. And a name we mentioned before is like a guy like Rashawn Slater. He fits the bill but most likely won't be there. But another couple of guys I have my eye on are like uh, an Alex Leatherwood and an Elijah Vera Tucker. I think you briefly mentioned Leatherwood last week, uh, DA. They both have experience at guard. So, um, you know, Leatherwood is is a kind of guy in particular who started uh, his career out in Alabama at right guard. So that's why I think he's definitely a guy who Douglas would target in this range. And at worst, this guy could be a dominant right guard, and then with the potential to supplant Fant at right tackle in uh, 2022, which is something we've talked uh, regularly about. 
Yeah, and I think you make you make a really good point, uh, particularly with with Leatherwood and, and Tucker. I think what you what you want to see it's similar to what the Oakland Raiders did that one offseason where they just signed the five best guys, right? So they signed Austin Howard. Uh, they they had they brought in Rodney Hudson, right? And they essentially said, listen, we're going to sign seven or eight good offensive linemen. The five best ones are going to play. Right. And that and and it's going to be guys that maybe, you know, started their career at tackle, but had really been better at guard. Uh, you know, and, and they I think that was that was the, the offseason they brought in Gabe Jackson. Right. Who, again, like there were a lot of concerns about his weight. Right. And they were like, no, we're going to play him at right guard. Right. Like that. He's going to be good at right guard. And so I think it's interesting when you when you look at when you look at Becton, because I think Becton is the only solidified start, the only solidified guy at his position, because you mentioned Connor McGovern. McGovern can easily slide over slide over to guard. It was one of the reasons why I was pushing for the Jets to draft Lloyd Cushenberry. Because I figured I was like, if you upgrade the center position, just move McGovern over and it gives you that kind of that kind of ability. It's going to be interesting because I think, you know, and this will tie into round three as we go into it, who you add up front makes nailing the running back pick so important. So let's go right into round three, guys. Uh, Running back one, you know, James alluded to who his is. Right. And we're going to have the next few months to kind of break down a lot more running back film, because, again, while the league has devalued the running back position. There is very few things you can do to help your young quarterback more than having competent, uh, competent run game back there. And this draft is full of guys that I think can contribute at the next level. So, Joe, let's start with you. Who is your running back one right now on December 20th? And please understand, folks, that there is an asterisk on this podcast because we can change our minds and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> so let's start right now with who you have as running back number one, and then we'll go right over to James. Yeah, before I started really doing a deep dive into this player, I'll admit I thought he was overrated. But as I evaluated him, I couldn't help but appreciate the player he is, especially when it comes to his change in direction and elusiveness. And you know you like a player when you start singing while watching them. And there were several moments in watching Najee Harris that I couldn't help but, Najee, when he ran somebody over or when he strung together several jump cuts that somebody his size really shouldn't be able to make. I mean, I, I was impressed. I've mentioned before, he's like a linebacker with the skill set of a running back. Najee is just a, a well-rounded dual threat, three down back. He has the patience and visions to play in both gap and zone. And there's just so much to like about him. Power, contact balance, hands, good burst, not great, I'll admit, but singular change of direction for a 230-pound bulldozer. And he uses his free hand like a hammer. I mean, this guy, he just punishes people. He also has this like Superman type leaping ability. If hurling human beings was a sport, he'd be the highest paid person in that league for sure. Um, Now, all right, fine. He doesn't have the long speed many of us covet, but he's still a stud and, and he's my number one guy right now. And, you know, when Blake Griffin and Chris Paul were, in, were, were on the Clippers and Lob City was very big, uh, my brother and I used to say that Blake Griffin dunks are steal your soul dunks. Right, like they just suck the air out of an arena. Najee Harris is, 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 is Blake Griffin on, on a football field. Like when he hits you, there is like it definitely takes a part of you. Like, and, and I think that when you look at guys, you, and you, you alluded to this, uh, Joe, and you've alluded to this multiple times, guys that big should not move that fast. It's just not, it's not a thing that should, that should be possible, but when he hits you, it hurts and it hurts and it hurts and it hurts. And the only back that I think has that in the NFL right now, where it's, it's punishing it's Derrick Henry. I think Derrick Henry is the only running back in the league right now that doles out more punishment than he takes. And I think Najee Harris next year is going to give him a run for his money. James, your running back one is different than Joe, but similar to me. So please uh, let the masses know who you have at running back one. 
Yeah, so my uh, running back one is Travis Etienne, um, whom I learned uh, his name is pronounced Etienne. Uh, I thought it was Etienne at first. You know, I'm a French speaker, but uh, it is, in fact, Etienne. Um, so I think the thing that really stuck out to me is how efficient he is as a runner, and I think that speaks to um, his discipline as well as his coaching, <clears throat> Tony Elliott. Um, I think the thing about Etienne that, like, sticks out is just that every time he gets the ball, he's going north-south. Like a lot of like talented running backs, there may be that temptation to dance and to move, you know, back a yard to get a few yards. But he never does that. Every time he gets a check down, he's going straight upfield. Absolutely no dancing. You know, try to make one man miss, fall forward. Um, I think for me that was the most impressive thing. Just how disciplined and consistent he was. Um, I think the one asterisk I would put by his name is that he's more of an inside runner than an outside runner. He looks kind of uncomfortable on some of those runs outside of tackles. Um, but overall, I really like him. He's incredibly well-rounded. Uh, the person who he reminds me of stylistically is Raheem Mostert. You know, I know we get a lot of Alvin Kamara comps, but I think that's like, frankly, kind of lazy just because everybody who has good contact balance gets comp to him. You know, like I, I hear it like every draft cycle and, and Realistically, there aren't that many players who are that good. So I think with Raheem Mostert, he has that long speed. Um, he can punish you. Um, obviously, Mostert isn't perceived like super like highly in the league. I'd say he's probably like a fringe top 10 to like 15 guy. But when he's healthy, he's good. Um, and so I think, you know, don't read into that too much. I would say it's more of a stylistic comparison than a, than a floor ceiling. Yeah, and I think I think Kamara is the is the easy choice for any running back that doesn't have to get off the field and can catch the ball. <laughs> I think that's who folks kind of lead on whenever you see some of these new guys coming coming out. Um, I will say I think I think Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, and we have you know, and we'll go through our entire running backs as we go. But it's an interesting discussion between them two because I I do think that I think that both of them represent kind of. I think both of them represent a crossroads for the NFL, right? And I think Derrick Henry has proven that you can have a big back as a feature back. I think the NFL moved away from that over the last few years, right? And Derrick Henry has kind of brought that back. He's a throwback back, right? Uh, you kind of have Zeke Elliott, who's kind of like that, but nowhere near Derrick Henry in terms of in terms of size and speed and strength, right? And so, but Etienne represents what we think of as the modern running back, right? And so I wonder, I'm very interested to see how uh, the NFL ends up grading them, especially if we get to the combine, right? Uh, if Najee performs at the combine or not, um, and also just how high they're taking because I think those are I think those are two running backs that have the chance to go in round one, even if it's towards the end of round one. And I think they'll they'll both produce. Um, let's go right into round four, guys. Uh, Seattle's pick, like I said earlier, currently 25th in the draft could go as I think as as high as 20 as low as 27th. And I think as high as like 20th if they or 19th if they miss the playoffs entirely, which I don't think they're going to. But. There's a lot of there's a lot of talk around veterans being moved this offseason. I personally think it's going to be an offseason where you do see a lot of veterans moved because one, the cap is going to come in substantially lower because of the pandemic. Uh, two, there's a lot of teams that are in salary cap 
hell. Actually, we should come up with a different description other than salary cap hell, because I don't know what the Saints find themselves in, $92 million over the cap, right? So whatever that is. And I remember growing up, the Denver Broncos were the kings of kicking the can down the road. They wouldn't extend guys right away, right? They'd make sure they fit Elway. Then when it's time to pay Terrell Davis, they paid Terrell Davis. Then they paid Mike Anderson. Then they paid Clinton Portis. They were the kings of kicking the can down the road. The Saints have lapped them four times. It's like a monopoly board. They've passed go like 10 times already. But with that said, there's a lot of veterans that could potentially be on the move this offseason. With Seattle's pick, are you guys willing to move that for a veteran? And if so, who is the veteran that you would target? James, I will pass it to you and then we'll go to Joe. Yeah, I mean, so the answer is yes. But I think it's worth just diving into the pros and cons of like trading a pick for a player. So the the reason why you want to accrue draft picks is because of the salary. Like you're not paying them that much money, you know, routinely you're paying them, um, especially on that third and fourth year of the contract for a first round pick. Um, you're paying them around like a fourth to a fifth of what they ultimately could be worth per year. Um, so I think we got to understand that like there is a, um, a benefit to the salary cap of maintain of having those picks. But I would say, if I were to trade it for a player, I would want it to be for an offensive player, either a wide receiver or an offensive tackle. Um, and obviously you mentioned the Saints. I think the Saints are a very good team to look at players to trade for um, because they're in $90 million um, above the cap, which is pretty problematic. Um, I don't know if they'd be willing to trade one of their tackles, but I think if they would be willing, I think a first round pick would be a fair swap. Um, they have two really good tackles in Teron Armstead and Ryan Ramchek. Um, Teron Armstead, I think is 28 Ram check is I think 25, um, both of their deals are going to be due next year. And, you know, barring some dramatic reversal of their salary cap circumstances, I don't know how they're going to be able to pay both of them. So I would say those are two players who I would constantly give up a first round pick to get. I don't know if they would be willing to do that. Um, I'm sure they, you know, they're, they've been a pretty successful front office. I'm sure they have plans uh, on how to get their salary cap down to be manageable, but um, I'd be surprised if it doesn't involve trading one of their players. Yeah. And I think uh, Donald Trump and the New Orleans Saints are the Spider-Man meme in terms of like debt and just pointing at each other because they owe a ton of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money. No. And I, and I, and I say, I can't remember a time where I've seen a team that far over the cap. Like $92 million is a lot. And to James's point, I think I think he's spot on. I think you have to look at their tackles. You have to look on the defensive line. Uh, they they weren't they didn't bring back Malcolm Jenkins last year. He went to Philly, right? So that was again a cap casualty. There's talk that they're gonna let Marcus Williams walk. They're they're really good safety. So that's another guy that could hit free agency. And you're talking about that team can look very, very differently because again, you don't have a clear succession plan at quarterback. I don't care what people say about Taysom Hill. He is a tight end uh, playing quarterback. So I, 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 they don't have a clear succession plan at quarterback. You just paid Kamara a ton of money. You just paid Michael Thomas a ton of money. They're probably a team that could see a lot of guys move. The Eagles are another team. Joe Douglas is, is team who they're actively talking about trying to find a way to get out of Carson Wentz, you know, whether <clears throat> and move him somewhere. Joe, would you, is there a veteran in particular that you would, without a doubt, move Seattle's pick for? And what would be your reasoning behind that Behind uh, that veteran? Yeah, I, I would do it. Uh, I like James's pick uh, with the Saints as well. Um, so I do it for a stud offensive lineman, specifically an offensive tackle, or an elite wide receiver like Allen Robinson. When you see the impact Stefan Diggs has had on the Bills, it's hard not to like that trade. 
You know, I understand the Vikings hit on Justin Jefferson, but that's an anomaly. Most of these guys need a couple of years to develop. And that's when you were lucky enough to get a good one. So the draft is still by and large a crapshoot and bringing in an elite level wide receiver like an Allen Robinson or DA, you mentioned Michael Thomas in the, uh, the Slack chat. I think that would be a great move. Surrounding Trevor or Fields, uh, well, Trevor, uh, <laughs> with an established wideout, wideout can only aid in their development. And although I like Mims as the future number one, I think it would be wise to bring in a veteran to compliment him. Plus, he hasn't exactly shown that you could rely on him in terms of his health. Now, I hope the Jets address the position in free agency, you know, with a, with a Godwin, Galladay, or, or even an Allen Robinson. But if they couldn't be had without a trade, I, I'd pull that trigger for sure. Now, I don't know if the Jets would have to give up a first for like an Allen Robinson, but if that's what it would take, I, I would definitely do that trade. And I will say, so I'm, I'm in a, I'm, I'm in a group chat with my brother and my childhood friends and I'm the only Jets fan. So you can imagine how that goes. But one of my friends, uh, one of my childhood friends said, would you do Sam Darnold and a two for like, so he, cause he was reading Bleacher Report and the, the rumor and Bleacher, the suggestion in Bleacher Report was that the Jets should trade a two for Zeke Elliott. And so he said, he's like, would you do Sam and a two for Zeke and a one, right? <laughs> and I said, I'd drive Sam to the airport myself if I could get a first round pick at Zeke Elliott, right? But those are like, be prepared for a lot of those kind of crazy suggestions from Jets fans because Jet fans have already said, you know, that we should trade Sam. Only, I, I, and, I, and I will screenshot and share the tweet. One Jets fan said we should only trade Sam Donald for two firsts. But this is the same group of fans that said that they would not trade Jermaine Curse for Dante Fowler. I love you, Jet fans, but there's a reason why we sit on this side and not on the other side, right? Uh, Jerry Krause had a really good quote in the Jordan rules. He's like, if you if you listen to the fans, you'll end up sitting with the fans. But hopefully Joe Douglas is listening to us because we've made some really good suggestions anyway. Let's go right to round five, which I think honestly is a, is a perfect segue now that I've mentioned the prince that we thought was promised in Sam Darnold. Uh, you know, yesterday, Trevor Lawrence balled. Justin Fields did not. Uh, by all accounts, the Jets will be moving on from Sam Darnold. Uh, you know, I think that that's pretty etched in stone. Uh, and I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on just what do you think went wrong? And and I think for me, I will say, I think that there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, I think allowing Mike McCagnin to, allowing Mike McCagnin to run the offseason and then firing him made no sense. I think hiring Adam Gase made no sense. Um, I also think that if you were going to clean house, you should have fired McCagnin and Bowles together. That way, Sam could have. That way, you could have just redone the entire organization, right? Um, I think that could have helped him because then you get everybody on the same page and you have a better choice of, of coaching hire. Because again, you hired Adam Gase, who you originally wanted to be Matt Rule's offensive coordinator. It just it just doesn't make sense. Uh, some of it is also Sam too, right? Sam has had some really bad games and he's played terribly. Now, our own James Coons last week said he would trade Sam Darnold for a seventh round pick and not look back. <laughs> Um, so that is where we are. A lot of Jet fans didn't like that. A lot of Jet fans did not like that. They wrote to our boss and said that, how dare we insult Sam Darnold that way? Uh, <laughs> what has got, What do you guys think has gone wrong? Joe, I will start with you. Just where did, where did it go wrong for Sam Darnold? Yeah. Well, I think context is important when discussing the demise of Sam Darnold. Uh, let's go back. Here's a kid who had just about one year of experience at quarterback in high school played two years in college for a bad coaching staff where he was running for his life. Uh, then he comes into a league and experienced another three years of horrible coaching, one of the worst offensive lines in the league, almost no playmakers, 
and absolutely no semblance of a running game. I think the real question should be, how could anybody develop under those circumstances? You know, what did the Jets do for Sam Donald? The answer is unequivocally nothing. You know, I don't think Sam's age should be an excuse for his poor play, but given his overall experience at the position before entering the league, he needed to be in a situation where he was nurtured properly in order to grow. And the New York Jets just weren't the right spot. So yeah, Sam has played badly and he does deserve some blame, but it's not shocking he regressed considering the situation. When your general manager is drafting interior defensive linemen, when you have one of the first offensive, worst offensive lines in the league, that's a problem. And I, I feel bad for Sam. You know, a guy like Jared Goff was fortunate enough to have Sean McVay as his head coach to save his career from the OG Adam Gase, Jeff Fisher. Um, so I, I hope Sam, Sam finds a situation like that for himself because I still believe he has a chance. Somebody just needs to nurture that talent properly. Did you, I love, I always love Jeff Fisher references because any and every day that I can, you know, say a four letter adjective in front of Jeff Fisher, <laughs> I think is a good day. I won't say it here, but know that I said it to myself as Joe said his name. But I also think one of the things that isn't mentioned often with Jared Goff is that his general manager just accrued a bunch of talent around him, right? So that way when Sean McVay took over, right? They had Todd Gurley, they had Aaron Donald, right? Like they had, they had something there. But what did the GM do that first offseason with Sean McVay? He signed Andre, Andre, Andrew Whitworth from the Bengals. So now you got a left tackle in there. He traded for Brandon Cooks. So now you went and got a wide receiver for him. You signed Robert Woods. Right. And you drafted Cooper Cup. So this is this is why it's it's not just about the coach. Right. When a lot of folks talk about Trevor, it's why you have to feel good uh, relatively good about Trevor Lawrence's future here. When you look at the fact that Joe Douglas drafted Makai Becton and Denzel Mims in his first in his first draft. James, you traded Sam Darnold for a churro last week. What are we like? <laughs> where did it go wrong for you? Uh, you know, where do you think it went wrong? Uh, and is he salvageable? I think that's the other question, too. And I think a lot of GMs are going to ask themselves, are you would you rather have Carson Wentz on a crazy contract, even though he has MVP like film on, you know, on record? Or do you want to roll the dice on a young quarterback who hasn't really flashed as much and who you have to decide that you're picking up his fifth year option before you even see him in your offense? James, uh, is he salvageable and where do you think it went wrong? Yeah. um, So I think the answer is that he's salvageable in terms. Okay. He's salvageable insofar as I think he can be a mediocre starting quarterback in the NFL. I don't think he's salvageable insofar as he can be a top 10 quarterback. I think that ship has sailed. Um, And I think perhaps even if I were to concede the premise that he could be a top 10 quarterback in the NFL, he wouldn't be able to be a top 10 quarterback in the NFL in time for that team to be able to win around him without having paid him. And so I think when we consider the fact that like most teams that win Super Bowls have quarterbacks on rookie deals or really team friendly deals, like I, I don't think that that's a realistic possibility for him. Um, you know, I think if he went to the right coaching staff, perhaps they could undo some of his like issues, but I think ideally he would sit behind somebody, but the contract situation um, would kind of motivate you to play him right away to see what you have because he's on a fourth year of his rookie contract and you'll need to have that fifth year option for 20 to $25 million. And are you really going to pay a fifth year option for somebody who hasn't really played significant snaps for you, who's sitting behind somebody? 
So, you know, I think honestly, like he is eligible. I don't think the ceiling's as high as it was, um, you know, Jets didn't do him any favors, but um, this is kind of just where he is. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that's a really good point. I think that how do you make a decision on paying him $24.1 million without seeing him like that? That just, it seems, it seems a, a little dangerous. Uh, so one final question on this round before we go to round six, where is Sam Darnold playing next year? Roll of the dice, Joe, give me one team name where you think he ends up. I, I could see him on the Colts, but I, I think that the Colts actually somehow get Carson Wentz. I think they make some kind of deal with the Eagles. So I'm kind of starting to think that that's not the best landing spot for him, but still at the same time, for some reason, like I, I get this feeling, you know, it's going to be between him and Sam. So I'll, 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 I'll stick with the Colts, even though okay. James. I think it's most likely Carson Wentz. Yeah. James, what do you think? Um, I think the bears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say the bears too, but since you said the bears and since Joe said the Colts, although I do agree with Joe, I think the Colts find a way to get Carson Wentz. Uh, I'm going to go out and say that I think Sam Darnold ends up playing football for the Washington football team next year. I think that there is absolutely no way that they bring back Dwayne Haskins. Right. Uh, and I think that they will bring back Alex Smith when Alex Smith is honestly the perfect guy for Sam to sit behind. In my opinion, it's why in so many of my uh, so many of my dream off seasons, I even have Alex Smith here in New York, so that way he can mentor Trevor Lawrence because I think he's got a track record of mentoring guys, Pat Mahomes, Colin Kaepernick, even Dwayne Haskins here here in Washington, who's only had really good things to say about Alex Smith. Um, and so I think I think he ends up in Washington. I think that Washington would rather do that. I just I do not see Ron Rivera signing up for a, a rookie quarterback. Um, I think that he would much rather get a guy that maybe he felt higher about even a couple of years ago uh, that I think is, is easier to do. And I think it's easier to swallow. Plus, you look at a team like Washington, they have Scary Terry, right? As they have him at wide receiver. Um, I think if they keep surf, they have a solid O line. And that defense is scary, man. That defense and that front seven is just really, really scary. With cap space, with draft picks, they can build around Sam. And I think it takes him out of the this notion, because you have Alex Smith, that you have to play him right away. Right. And 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 I think it removes him from that. It lets him compete with a guy who's a who's a professional. Uh, and Sam's a good Sam's a good kid. He's never complained about Adam Gase, never complained about Joe Douglas or any of that. And I think Washington would be a really good spot for him. So I'm gonna go out and say that I think he goes to Washington. Uh round six. Outside of Makai Becton. Who is the one player out of Joe Douglas's first draft class that you guys feel has the highest ceiling? I will go first. I think for me, uh, if I had to roll the dice on anybody being a potential pro bowler or a potential all pro, it's Ashton Davis. I had Ashton Davis 28th on my top, on my top 300. The Jets got him in round three. I thought that that was a steal. Um, and I think Ashton Davis, I think Ashton Davis this year, somebody had tweeted this and I thought it was really interesting. Ashton Davis this year is what a lot of folks saw from Jamal Adams around the line of scrimmage, right? Like, like he didn't hesitate to initiate contact. That kind of thing. But Ashton Davis is really good in coverage. I know that there's a lot of, there's a lot of things out there that show him that he's getting beat. But again, also your rookie safety should not be one-on-one against Tariq Hill. It, that should not be a thing, right? Uh, but I think he's the guy that has the highest ceiling. And I think he's the guy that it would not surprise me if he's a pro bowler or an all pro at, at some point. James, who, who are you? I saw you fist bump, which means that you were also on the Ashton Davis train. Yeah, so I, I am a big fan of Ashton Davis, and I think he does have the highest ceiling. Although, um, you know, if I were going to talk about him, I would just say that I'm, I'm not sure how likely it is he realizes that ceiling, just because I think he has a long ways away. Um, but the other player that I wanted to bring up is Bryce Hall. Um, and I would have to really, like, modify the question that you asked in order for him to really be the appropriate answer. I don't think he has the 
highest ceiling, but I think he's most likely to realize um, his sort of ceiling, which I think is a solid CB2. Um, you know, he's a little athletically limited, but he does have a lot of like diverse experience in terms of like deep zone and then also man coverage. Um, I think the like question is whenever we bring in a defensive coordinator, like what type of scheme are they running? And is that a scheme that's conducive to his skill set? You know, if we were to bring in a coordinator like Eberflus to be our head coach, like he runs predominantly Tampa too. I don't think that's a scheme that like Bryce is super cut out for or that he has a lot of experience with who knows he, he could really like show out, but um, you know, I, I don't think it's likely. Um, so I'd say Bryce is a guy that I'm like super optimistic about. He's never going to be a star, but like, I think he can be a very solid role player for this team. Yeah. And I think, honestly, I really like the point you make about just, just how the, especially in the secondary, how critical it is that we hire a very good defensive coordinator or, you know, a head coach with his own system, because you don't want to essentially start the cornerback room from scratch. And I think Bryce Hall, I, I liked him. At, I liked him at UVA. I thought that again, if he hadn't gotten hurt, I think he definitely goes substantially higher than he did. Um, but one of the things that I do like about him, and then I'll throw it to Joe, is that he's been, he's ran the gauntlet since he's been put in the starting lineup, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, <laughs> and he's never hang his head. He never hangs his head. He, he competes on every, every route. Um, and that's something that we didn't see from Pierre Desir. So I know the bar is very low, but this is a young cornerback coming in, taking on some of the top wide receivers in the league. And he hasn't, he hasn't shied away from that challenge. Joe, what about you? Who do you think out of Douglas's first draft class has the highest ceiling? And I'll, I'll amend the question because that's a really good point by James and who's, uh, how likely, who's more likely to reach that ceiling or at least come close? I think the guy with the high ceiling is Denzel Mims. Um, the fact that he fell to the end of the second round was just a complete steal. I thought I had a first round grade on him. I was shocked that he wasn't drafted in the first round. I don't think, you know, I know we as Jets fans, we really appreciate him. We like him, but I don't think people realize how advanced he is as a wide receiver. You know, even in uh, college, he did this thing called stealing the release which is what he would pretty much bait a cornerback on a play when he's not getting a ball, just so he could use it against him later on in the game to get open. And that's just kind of like advanced stuff that people his age and experience level don't do. And I, I, I think as long as he stays healthy, Denzel Mims is going to be a pro bowler, all pro in this league. I really feel that way. I like that. And I, and I think even when we look, when we look back to the, the question before this round about what went wrong with Sam, I think one of the things that you can see with Trevor Lawrence is he would walk into a much better situation than Sam Donald ever did, right? Sam Donald on opening week of his first rookie start, his number one receiver was Jermaine Curse, His number one running back was Isaiah Crowell and his left tackle was Kelvin Beecham. Trevor Lawrence in theory would walk in day one at worst, Makai Becton, Denzel Mims and then Michael Pirine, but then that's before you even factor in the fact that they could sign an Allen Robinson or trade for a Michael Thomas. They could sign a Jamal Williams or sign a Marlon Mack, right? And so that alone, I mean, I think and Denzel Mims, it's interesting. Chase Claypool was the wide receiver I most I did not want in the draft. He was the one I did not want because I I, I thought his I thought he he wasn't fluid in his movements. He looked very very stiff. He kind of it was very weird. And then now to see him do it in Pittsburgh, I'm like, well, of course he went to Pittsburgh where he can prove me wrong, right? Uh, but Denzel Mims, it's interesting. Like there were all and 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 this is where we get to like the lazy analysis. There's a lot of folks who said, well, you know what? He's just like Stephen Hill, right? And for me, I was just like, I don't even. I, 
like one, Stephen Hill has him by like 20 pounds or whatever. But two, like Stephen Hill never caught with his hands the way Denzel Mims did. Den- Stephen Hill was very much a body catcher. Denzel Mims is not that. If anything, Denzel Mims uses his hands almost exclusively, right? Um, and so it's interesting to see that because whereas Claypool was the guy I didn't want, Claypool and Mims were almost synonymous. Like they were like, well, if you don't like Claypool, you can't like Mims. And I'm like, those are two very, very different kind of receivers. Um, Perfect segue into round seven, the final round for this episode of draft season. And once again, thank you guys for rocking with us through four episodes. Now Uh, the feedback has been great. Uh, Joe has told me that more people have listened to the first three episodes of draft season than they did the last three episodes of the last year we did it. So that's good. That means that we've increased our, our base. So that's fantastic. And that's a, that's a testament to James and to Joe and all the great work that they've done, but let's go right into round seven. Who is your one Absolutely not. I do not want to take this player in the draft. Like, again, Chase Claypool was mine last year, and I'm very glad to be wrong about him. Very glad to be wrong about him. But who is your big no-no? I will start with mine. Uh, And I thought long and hard about this, right? Because I was like, man, two first-round picks, we really can't go wrong, right? I will be very, very upset if we take Kadarius Toney at 25. I would be very, very upset. I would throw something at my TV and here's why, right? I like the kid, right? I think he can be useful in the next level. He is not a first round receiver and I would be livid. I would be livid. I would be livid. He is my one no, okay? <laughs> He's my one no uh, and I will gladly be wrong. I will gladly be wrong, but he is my one no. Joe, I see you laughing. Let's go right to you. Who is your one no? For this draft class. So, you know, I haven't watched everybody just yet, so it's hard to say. But I will say no, absolutely no to any interior defensive lineman. In fact, I'm not going to study any for this draft. And the day we're scheduled to have that discussion, I'm going to be on vacation. So no Jay uh, Tufele, no Jordan Davises, no Tyler Shelvins for me. Absolutely not. No interior defensive lineman in 2021. And honestly, this is the thing. If the, if 2020 was a football team, it would be the New York Jets, like you said. If 2021 was a position, it is interior defensive lineman. We need to get away from that. That needs to not be James, who is your one no? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you mentioned the uh, record podcast numbers. I think they may be going down after I say uh, my one no. So viewers may want to cover their ears or listeners may want to cover their ears. Um, it's Kenny Gainwell. It is. I'm sorry to say it. I know I'm breaking some parts here. I know I am. Um, I think the thing for me is that Gainwell running back from Memphis, he opted out after last season. Um, I think a lot of people look at his highlights and they really like him and it's hard not to. I mean, his highlights are very impressive. I think among the good things that he does, you know, he's a great um, deep ball catcher, which is kind of like unsuspecting for a running back. Um, and he has also like kind of nice balance, you know, he gets tripped up a lot, but he stays up. I think that's very impressive, but overall, um, he, he really doesn't get it done for me. Like between the tackles, he doesn't really break too many, like substantial tackles. Like, um, like I would expect uh, a day one day two running back to do. So like overall, um, I saw some Boston Scott in him, but even that I'm not like too keen on, I think overall, like, I have him as a fifth or sixth round pick. I know that's de- a departure from consensus. Um, and, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to getting into that debate like another time with you guys. But um, he's somebody who's no go for me. And on that note, we have booted James off the island. 
And now we're now taking audition tapes for people who will respect the Gainwell Hive. No, I, I, you know what, and, and I respect that. And I will tell you, when we did uh, season one, uh, Jeff Lloyd and I, the one player we disagreed on. So we disagreed on two players. And I will give you, so the two players that we disagreed on, one was Bud Dupree. Um, so I was higher on Bud Dupree than Jeff was. But Jeff got me the, the following year, in year two, because he was right about, uh, oh, what the heck is his name? Now I'm talking, <laughs> he was right on TJ Hawkinson. He was right on TJ Hawkinson. I thought Noah Fant was the better tight end. Uh, and he was right about TJ Hawkinson. So this is the thing. Like, I think the, one of the beauties about even this, you know, and again, we've been doing this six years now, is that I, we, it, it doesn't have to be a consensus, right? It doesn't have to be a consensus because I think that there's things that we all see differently. And I think that that's what makes the show work really, really well. Guys, thank you so much for listening to us. Episode four of draft season, year six. Uh, your moderator is always D.A. Osorio, Joseph Bellick, James Koontz. We will join you guys next week where the Jets, I guarantee, guarantee, will still be on the Trevor train. I guarantee it. Uh, so if you have a chance in the next two minutes, put all your money on whoever they play next week. I don't even remember who that, the Browns. I don't even know. <laughs> um, but thank you guys for tuning in as always. And we'll catch you guys next week.